Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is Monday, January 14th, 2019, and before introducing today's guest... I want to thank everyone who voted in our survey for your favorite episodes of last year. It takes a while to compile those, but we will at some point communicate those via Twitter and via uh, an episode later in this year. And we do have a category in our archives called Favorites. You can see what people voted for in the past, what were some of the favorite episodes in years past. And one of the things I learned from the survey is that Many of you do not realize that we have highlights for every episode, which is almost a full transcript. We have links to things related to this episode, including uh, other econ talk episodes and the writings of the author or the guest. And so I encourage everyone to check those out if they interest you at all. And now for today's guest, she is historian and author Jessica Riskin. She is the Jean-Paul Gimond Director of the France-Stanford Center for Interdisciplinary Studies and a professor of history at Stanford University. Her latest book and the subject of today's conversation is The Restless Clock, A History of the Centuries-Long Debate About What Makes Living Things Tick, which was published in 2016. Jessica, welcome to EconTalk. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be able to talk with you. Your book's a history of of the science of how we've thought about life and nature itself and science also. And at the heart of the book is a tension between what you call brute mechanics and agency. Uh, Explain those two different issues and how they've played out in the history of science without giving us the entire book, which, of course, is what the book's about. But just give (laughs) us a a brief introduction to the idea behind those two concepts. Sure, yeah. Well, I think that there has been a a kind of a struggle um, throughout the history of the modern life sciences between two models of living things. Um, and according to both models, living things are um, a kind of machinery in the sense that they're made out of material parts uh, interacting with one another. But uh, one of the two models um, considers them to be machines, clock-like machines, that are essentially passive. They've been designed to function in a certain manner, and they design they they function in exactly the way they were designed, uh, like a clock, tick tick tick. Um, and they're, so they're essentially passive. According to the competing model, um, living things are active machines. They're they're self-making, continually self-transforming. Um, they have a kind of internal agency. And so you know those I think those two uh, models of living things emerged uh, around the 17th century and have been in a kind of a interesting struggle with one another ever since then. And even today, I think uh, you see um, elements of each in current science. So in the restless clock, I was interested in tracking that struggle. And it's, um, on the surface, it seems kind of obvious that, say, a car is a machine and I'm not. And yet, there are many car-like, machine-like things in me. My blood pressure, my, um, I sweat when it's hot out. There are a lot of things that are clearly not in any sense agency on my part. They happen without agency. They happen passively without any intention. 
And so there is a deep, obviously, philosophical question as to whether I can have any intention at all, or is it all just the parts, all just the chemistry, the adrenaline, et cetera, that makes me uh, tick, and I'm under the illusion that I have agency. Well, also, the other thing about, I, I should sort of specify that when I use the word agency um, in the book, I use it sort of at many, many different levels. So maybe the highest level sort of agency would be conscious acts of will. But uh, going, you know, you can sort of go all the way down to very, very rudimentary forms of agency by which living organisms respond to their environment, uh, at least according to certain theories, um, that are not acts of will, you know, uh, say, uh, phototropism of a plant or something like that. And um, uh, Lamarck, uh, the, the French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who was the, the, really the first person at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, to develop uh, a theory of what we would now call evolution. He didn't use that word, he, but, but uh, transformation of living forms. Uh, Lamarck was the first to develop uh, a theory of that, and he identified um, kind of a, a, a spectrum of forms of agency going all the way down to very, very rudimentary sensitivity and reactiveness to the environment, and then all the way up, he says. Uh, he said that at the level of birds and mammals, um, that was the level of complexity at which organisms could respond by acts of will to their environments and um, shape themselves through actual acts of will by forming habits in response to their environment. Um, so, you know, there certainly is a spectrum of forms of living agency in the history of biology. Lamarck's having a bit of a comeback. We will get to that later. I think that's yeah. incredibly he fascinating. Is. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, but, but let's. I want to go back to the. You mentioned phototropism, and I assume that means that if you put a plant in a, on a table, it'll turn toward the sun and start right. growing toward the sun. Which is, we would often in science, uh, we'll certainly do this. We certainly do this in economics. Uh, we would say the plant acts as if it seeks the sun. We don't think the plant is conscious, but we find it useful to use a metaphor of intention and agency to describe that activity, that action, that result. And and what's fascinating about to me about much of what you write about is that, you know, I think most scientists say, well, we don't really mean the plant wants to get to the sun. We're just – it's just a metaphor. And yet we struggle to keep those metaphors – separate from the reality. Right. Yeah, I mentioned uh, in the introduction to the book, it's funny, actually, this is one of the passages that people have responded to the most. I mentioned a conversation that I had uh, with a good friend of mine, my, uh, actually one of my college roommates who's a biologist now. And um, I was talking with her about this. You know, she was saying that uh, biologists in conversation, in casual settings, um, it, all the time um, speak as though the organisms they study had agency, um, were, you know, um, seeking things and uh, striving for things and um, and so forth. And she said, but we would never publish in those terms. We would never, you know, this is sort of only okay for casual conversation. And I think that's sort of an interesting thing. Um, you know, if you find a community of, of researchers who speak in one way and publish in another way, <laughs> it's sort of an interesting phenomenon. Why is that? I'm interested. So that one way to describe what I was interested in in the book is uh, the, the history of that situation. Why do biologists speak in this way? Casually, but uh, they would never publish in that in those terms. Well, you and I have a colleague at Stanford in the business school, Paul Flater. I don't know if you know Paul, but he wrote a very provocative piece, and uh, we talked about it on an econ talk, uh, and we'll link to it, 
where he talked about the as-if assumption in economics. People act as-if or the idea that we model things by stripping away a lot of reality and we'll assume that firms say or we often call them agents actually in economics. It's a pretentious term to mean people who decide things and make and live. <laughs> but we'll talk about yeah. agents having a certain uh, utility function or maximand. And when pressed – most economists will say, well, we don't literally mean that's, you know, that's exactly what we're doing, but they act as if they're doing that and it's useful. The problem is, is that we then often want to make welfare statements, statements about well-being that are predicated on those models actually describing reality, not just trying to use a model to predict what's going to happen. And those are two very different things. And what Flater points out is that as economists, we typically confuse those because of our habits of talking about them as if they're the same, and they're not at all, right. and it's really dangerous. Right. Yeah, I mean, of course, any model, this is sort of, I guess, a basic point in the philosophy of science that any model is going to um, reduce and simplify. Uh, if it didn't do that, it would be worthless. Then you might as well look at the world itself rather than at your model of the world if, if, if the model doesn't reduce or simplify in any way. But as you say, for one thing, it's important to keep in mind the dimensions uh, in which you're reducing and simplifying. And also, I think um, it's a question of what people are trying to achieve um, with this particular form of, of reduction or simplification. So to come back to uh, – to give an example from, uh, from, from the book, uh, I think the, the classical path passive mechanist or brute mechanist model of, of considering living things to be um, – uh, like clocks uh, or other sorts of machines that have been designed in a certain way and function in that way for all eternity. The purpose of that model, that model came out of, um, this is one of the things I'm, I've been most interested in in the book, it, that model came out of a theological tradition, uh, the argument from design, in which people beginning around the middle of the 17th century um, began to, especially uh, English in, Englishmen like, uh, for example, Robert Boyle, but I think it's a fundamentally Protestant theological tradition, the argument from design. People began to look for lots of evidence of rational design in, in nature as evidence of, um, of a rational designer, of a rational God. And so, you know, they, people got very, very interested in studying phy uh, physiological fitness, the, the perfect suitability of, you know, the eye of a bird to the task it has to perform versus the eye of a fish, uh, which needs to do a different task in a different environment. You know, those, those questions of physiological fitness first, uh, got a lot of attention in the context of the argument from design. And of course, the argument from design uh, assumes that agency is external, is outsourced to the designer and not internal to the designed creature. And that's a fascinating – it's a paradox of sorts or a, at least a, uh, a confusion even for, I think, some people because on the surface, the movement towards seeing nature as mechanical – as a, and I think of that as you, you didn't talk about this much, but I think of it as a as a series of causes and effects, a series of a chain of of responses to stimuli. Uh, that's the essence of science. It's that you're not going to use or invoke uh, a divine uh, mover. And similarly for human beings, you're not going to um, you're not going to invoke a soul to describe what right. gives human beings life. That's the essence of science is to rule out those theological arguments. And yet I want you to say it again. Your argument that the 
that at the beginnings of science, at least, the more mechanical people viewed nature, the more they were essentially invoking a divine origin. Right. I, that's right. I think there's a kind of supreme irony, actually, uh, in this. I mean, the, the, the founding of the modern sciences in the, around the 16th, 17th century, um, one of the kind of main features of that moment in the history of natural science was the ruling out of what, um, what these new uh, philosophers, people like um, Newton and Boyle, um, took to be mystical, you know, no longer will we um, uh, appeal to mystical tendencies and um, souls and things like that. Miracles, just now, magic. Exactly. Uh, um, from now on, so final causes in, the, in, in Aristotelian terms are to be ruled out, purposes, tendencies, inclinations, um, and so forth. From now on, we're simply going to talk about matter in motion, uh, material causes. Um, and so, you know, the, the origin of this kind of passive clockwork model of, of the cosmos really uh, takes place in the 17th century moment, uh, in which people are trying to rule out uh, uh, these kind of inexplic inexplicable tendencies and, and proclivities uh, that they saw as having been everywhere in scholastic medieval science. But uh, there is an irony to this, which is that uh, they sort of outsourced all of that agency to an external designer. So in a sense, you have this purely material artifact world, this very beautiful, very complex, uh, very perfect and rationally designed artifact world that's all made out of just moving parts. Uh, and so the advantage of that uh, is that it's intelligible. Um, Descartes uh, is another example of someone who, you know, he was one of the first to describe this beautiful, rational artifact world um, and to extend it even to living things uh, to say everything is just machines and we can understand. And therefore, what's wonderful about that is that we can understand it all. It's all intelligible to reason. If we apply human reason to this world, we will understand it entirely. Um, but uh, then there's this ironic um, sort of accompanying feature, which is that agency and the, sort of the, the original cause of all of this is, is external, is supernatural. It's out there in the hands of a, of a supernatural God. So there's a kind of supernaturalism that goes along with it. And yet in today's world, I think many uh, scientists who, who do not believe in God would argue you don't need a first mover. It just kind of it, – it, it just happens. And it just so happens that that world that happens – has cause and effect, laws, things that we can inquire about and uncover, and we do, and that's nothing to do with intention or design on the part of a, of a divine origin. It's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, here's another, we, we've come to another kind of basic um, principle in the philosophy of science, which is that any explanation has to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere. You have to have some primitives, some, some beginning point. Um, and so for somebody like... Uh, Descartes, that beginning point was matter and motion. You know, you assume the existence of matter and motion, and then you explain everything in those terms. Uh, and I suppose reason, human reason. Um, uh, somebody like uh, the German philosopher Leibniz, um, he really objected to uh, the, the kind of major um, theories that he saw emerging around him to, the, to Cartesians and to Newtonians. He said basically 
matter and motion explain nothing without without force, without energy, modes of action. How do, how, what puts all of this in motion? You need to have some source of, of, of movement and, and energy and force. And so he made that his primitive. Um, and so, so I, I guess it's a question of what you're willing to assume and what you really want to be able to explain in terms of those things that you've decided you're willing to assume. Well, I, think, I think for modern scientists, uh, they're very Leibnizian. I don't know if that's a word. Is that a word? That is a word, I think. So. so, well, at least I hope so, because I use it. <laughs> so, they're very Leibnizian, and that that first cause is the Big Bang, and it, you know, once that's set into motion, we don't have a theory as to how that happened or why it happened. And if you're a religious believer, you'd say it could have come from God. But if you're not a religious believer, just say, well, they don't. Say, I, don't I, I think increasingly scientists don't say, well, we just don't know. They say, actually, just we don't. I don't even need to have a that first cause anymore. But I think most people, most human beings are, are very uncomfortable with that. And they, they like the idea, even if it's a mystery as to the source of it, they like the idea of a first cause. Yeah. Well, and also I think um, you need a lot of first causes in scientific explanations because the Big Bang, for example, is uh, a useful co- uh, first cause maybe in cosmology, astronomy, uh, but there are plenty of areas of science where it probably doesn't get you very much explanatory power and you need other first causes True. there. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think it's sort of a pro- uh, uh, an interesting philosophical problem throughout the sciences for any given area or field, which are the things that I'm willing to assume um, and which are the things that I need to uh, be able to explain. But those explanations are always going to go only as far as the level of assumptions, right? You, you, again, you have to start. It's interesting. My daughter uh, is a junior in high school and she's taking AP biology this year. And one of the things she found hardest when she started the, the, the AP bio curriculum was uh, that it's seemed to her that some of the questions she was asking in class, she was told, uh, the teacher would say, you know, you just have to assume that. If, if you go to grad school in biology, maybe you'll be able to learn about that, but for now, let's just assume it. And other things, the teacher would give her a very um, worked out explanation that she's would then need to really understand and learn. And so she was saying to me, and she said to her teacher, I don't understand what's the difference between those questions that I have to just assume, and those where I really need to be able to explain it thoroughly. And I think that that's a problem not just for you know high school juniors and AP bio, but throughout the sciences. Oh, I think it's a big part of life. I mean, I it's yeah. not, it goes way beyond uh, AP bio for sure. And it, when I used to be in the classroom teaching economics, I I love to ask students questions that didn't have clean answers. Uh, that were puzzles, and to answer those puzzles to make any progress, you have to make some assumptions. And my students at first, you know, they want to know, well, what are the right assumptions? And that's the hardest part. Knowing what to ignore and what to focus on uh, is is a huge part of the scientific enterprise and even the social scientific enterprise. And it's not really science. It's a craft. It's an art, at least in economics. Um, yeah. I, I, want to, I want you to talk about the metaphor of the restless clock because it, it haunts me after reading your book. Um, and I want you to contrast it with the brute machine. You mentioned it briefly, but I want you to go into a little more depth, uh, the origin of that phrase and its contrast with the, the brute machinery. And the brute machinery, brute mechanism model, you know, I'm basically at the mercy of, of my chemistry forces beyond uh, the control of the, the living uh, uh, organism itself. How does that re- restless clock work? Okay, so thank you for asking that. Actually, I was the restless clock. Um, 
I struggled to come up with a title for the book. And, and when I arrived at this, I thought, oh, that's just that that'll really encapsulate the argument. Um, it actually, the phrase, the restless clock comes from a passage by uh, Leibniz, who I was just mentioning uh, a few moments ago, in which he says um, he, he's, he's writing uh, in his new essays, which were written in French, actually, uh, even though he was German, he was writing in French. And so he says, in German, the name for the balance arm of a clock is unruhe, which he translates as, in French, inquiet or restless. Um, and uh, and he says, I like that name for the balance arm of a clock because if you think about it, clocks are always having to respond and adjust um, to, to their environment. They're always having to uh, make up for little variations uh, and, and, and uh, things taking place around them. And it's the same way, I'm, I'm certainly paraphrasing here, <laughs> but it's the same way he says in in living bodies. We're constantly having to respond and adjust to our surroundings. Um, we can never just be calm and quiet. We have to be always in a constant state of restless responsiveness. And what struck me about that passage is that this was a period in which pretty much everybody, everybody, everybody was making that analogy between living organisms or different natural phenomena, but including living organisms on the one hand and clockwork on the other hand. But they meant very different things by it. So um, another, uh, you know, some, someone else like, uh, well, I'm, go I'm going forward in time a bit, but someone like William Paley, who made that same analogy, uh, analogy meant that living things are passive mechanical devices that, ha that, that have been designed by some external designer. Leibniz meant that they're dynamic, responsive, self-adjusting, self-moving. Uh, self so he meant something very different by it. And so that's why I chose it as, as, as my title, because I wanted to point out this kind of less, I think, less visible but equally important tradition in the history of the life sciences, which is the restless clockwork model as opposed to the passive clockwork model. Yeah, I want to stay with that for a minute, but I first want to digress for a second about economics. In economics, we have the model of a market in equilibrium. We teach it to our students. Uh, when I teach economics, it's at the heart of what I teach often is a way of analyzing the impact of, say, a policy intervention or change in something uh, that's affecting the market participants, maybe the supply or demand side. So I might be looking at a, a change in tastes or taxes or subsidies or price controls or uh, and so on, changes in the so-called rules of the game. And we then, in economics, we'll, we perturb the system, and then we watch it come back into equilibrium. But when pressed, certainly a good economist says, well, of course, that's just a metaphor. Markets, first of all, they're not real. There's no such thing. We're not talking about a farmer's market. We're talking about, say, the thing that determines the price of uh, shirts made out of 100% cotton that are, say, iron-free in the United States right now. That's what we mean by the market for shirts, and there isn't one. It's just a conceptual idea to help me wrap my brain around a really complicated set of interactions between buyers and sellers. And I don't really believe it's in equilibrium because the price of cotton is constantly changing and, and there's all kinds of uh, things affecting the labor market for workers in the cotton industry and the fashion market's changing every second. And so it's a metaphor. It's it's really a restless – it's a super restless clock because <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> – it doesn't necessarily stay on time at all, and we wouldn't really expect it to, and a good economist admits that, but we use that metaphor because it's helpful. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I think, um, well, uh, to sort of pursue the connection between 
living systems and economic systems, it seems to me that the modern theories of each of those have a common origin uh, that is very much related to the subject of my book that um, uh, you know, sort of uh, Darwin, classical evolutionary, classical Darwinian evolutionary theory and classical liberal economic theory um, come from a, a, the same intellectual moment and indeed very much uh, influenced one another. Um, certainly, you know, Darwin had in mind a kind of um, invisible hand uh, uh, struggle, uh, competition, competition yep. struggle for survival when he was developing his idea of, um, of uh, natural selection. And I think, but, but reciprocally, I think the authors of classical liberal economic theory had in mind, Adam Smith certainly had in mind um, uh, the, the, the late 17th and early 18th century natural sciences as a model for how social science, so, social explanations should be, you know, social explanations should be as much as possible like natural scientific explanations. So there's a real convergence in that moment. And Smith did not mean uh, that you had to use calculus, but his modern uh, offspring certainly think that that's the way to understand it. I don't agree, but it's a common thing to, to model um, – Economics is something like physics. I do think, and I, uh, I think I learned this. Uh, I know I learned this from Vernon Smith, uh, Nobel laureate, in an econ talk episode with Jim Otteson when we were talking about Adam Smith. That that Smith was alive when Newton was alive. I think he was three or f- maybe five at the most. They didn't they didn't have an intellectual conversation, but clearly Newton was interested in the harmony of the heavens, and I think. I think Smith was deeply interested in the harmony of our interactions with each other, how they worked together and interacted together. And he didn't uh, – he wasn't looking for, um, you know, an equation for gravity, but uh, he had something similar in the back of his mind. Oh, absolutely. That's right. I think that the, the intellectual world that Smith was operating – and was one that had been extremely shaped by um, Newtonian physics and and the kind of um, the, the the kind of natural science that got established at the end of the 17th century uh, with Newton's Principia and other contemporary works. Um, and another thing that's interesting is it seems to me that both uh, just going back to Smith and Darwin um, that both of them were um, much more sort of um, causal pluralists than their followers. <laughs> so, well, you know, so. there was so Darwin was interested so there's a kind of very reduced form of of Darwinism that Darwin himself did not uh, advance that sort of reduces everything just to um, adaptation, uh, natural selection, and adapt every every single trait is the result of um, uh, natural selection directly, and therefore is adaptive in some way. Um, and the same thing, I think, with um, with with economic theory after Smith, the idea that really competition is the only <laughs> uh, the only thing. Um, and I think in, in each case, you know, Darwin was interested in a kind of multiplicity of causes, and I think Smith was also interested in more of a multiplicity of forces at work in the economy. So there was there's a kind of simplification that happens in the wake of each of those. It's a great point. I, you know, they're both incredibly rich thinkers that if you haven't read them in the original, you've missed something. You may not learn a lot about uh, Facebook and, and social media, say, reading Smith, although I wouldn't. As I've written, there is something to be learned from Smith about social media. But uh, just an example is uh, obviously there are many things that are outdated in Smith and similarly in Darwin. And yet the uh, you get to see their minds at work in such a rich and non uh, 
uh, reductionist way in, in, right. in yeah. that, that, as you say, led to some really reductionist theories down the road, but they were not reductionist themselves at all. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. So you write a beautiful thing about going back to the restless clock for a sec. Um, you say to say that a human being works like a machine, whether one accepts or rejects the idea sounds like science. But it sounds less like science when one describes the machinery as restless, moved by its own inner agency. And the reason I – end a quote. The reason I love that is um, I do think we, – we've talked recently in the program about how whether there's free will or not, most of us behave as if there is. Uh, we find that to be a helpful uh, – maybe an illusion, but it certainly is a helpful way to live. Uh, but I think that idea of seeing ourselves as restless clocks – that, that there's a huge piece of our lives that we have no control over, a huge piece of our part of our being, but that somehow we have some agency and we do interact with our environment in complicated ways. And um, I'm going to give you an example in a second, but I, first I want to just react to that. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm interested in with this book is what does or doesn't sound like science is is a matter of history, you know, um, Something sounds like science because uh, because the science has has developed in a certain way, and so I guess I was sort of trying to suggest with that passage. I think it's toward the end of the book that one could imagine this this kind of parallel um, historical development in which the description of restless clockwork uh, sounds perfectly scientific, and that there are there are I think um, there's a kind of uh, political history of science almost. You know, it, 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 as I've said, it had to do with um, the relations between actually science and theology. So the idea that um, agency and purpose and meaning and those questions, those questions belong in the realm of theology. And science is meant to just address questions of sort of proximate mechanism, this piece pushing up against that piece um, and to describe an essentially passive world to which the theologians will then supply um, the meaning and the purpose and the agency. And and so it's for that reason, I think, that today one of those sentences, uh, the, the kind of passive clockwork uh, classical mechanist model sounds scientific and the active mechanist model sounds less so. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's what I was getting at with that. And in fact, William Paley, I had mentioned him earlier, he, uh, he was the author of um, The Watch on the Heath. I think probably many people have heard this uh, kind of little story that Paley told. If you're walking across a, he- a heath and your a foot struck against a, a field and your foot struck against a stone, you could reasonably say to yourself, well, maybe that stone just happened to be there. It's always been there. But if your foot struck against a, a watch, then you'd have to imagine that there must be a, a watch maker somewhere. Um, and so, you know, this is his analogy. This is, uh, he, he wants you to then apply that to the natural world, just as a watch implies a, a watchmaker, the rational design of nature implies a, a, a rational God. And uh, Darwin uh, recalled um, that he, as a student at Cambridge University, had, had had to memorize a lot of Paley, a lot of Paley's writings. And he quite admired, actually, Paley. You can even hear the kind of resonance in Darwin's writing of, of some of Paley's um, rhythms and, and um, way of phrasing things. And, and Darwin basically said, I'm, I'm doing Paley, but I'm just taking out the God part. Uh, so I, uh, and, and that's an interesting thing to think about. Um, can you, if you, if you adopt that model of living things as, as sort of passive clockwork-like mechanisms, 
can you then just take out the God part or isn't it implicit in that model and don't you need a kind of different model of, of living mechanism? So, yeah. So why does that matter? I mean, why, why for a modern scientist today, who's not interested in God or Paley for sure, uh, who's usually mocked by most uh, modernists, moderns, why is that relevant? Why should I care about this old historical uh, problem that you're talking about, this tension, this issue of, you know, I'm just doing my science. Leave me alone. I don't need to worry <laughs> about this. Right. Good question. Well, I think because I think practicing scientists, if they don't know so much about the history of their science, um, then they don't fully understand the the stakes of their of, of their own convictions, that, you know, so if you have a conviction that ascribing agency to an evolving organism is unscientific, but you don't realize that that emerged from this older theological division of labor, <laughs> um, then I think you haven't fully understood the stakes of your own, uh, what you take to be axiomatic, you know, today in the 21st century. Um, you, you, Darwin, I think Darwin himself uh, was tremendously torn between the Paley model of clockwork, passive clockwork, and the Lamarck model of living things as self-making, self-transforming machines. Uh, that's how Lamarck saw things. Um, Lamarck, of course, was in, in very bad odor <laughs> in um, uh, in the 19, you know, uh, well, has been, I think he continues to be in many circles in very bad odor. But initially, at the end of the 18th and going into the 19th century, Lamarck was associated with the French Revolution, with materialism, with regicide, with, with Jacobinism, radical politics. And so, you know, Darwin sort of struggled to reconcile these two competing models and with all of this politics surrounding them. And if you don't know about that history, then you as a practicing biologist today in, in you know, 2019, um, you don't fully understand why uh, Lamarckian sounds to you like bad science. <laughs> yeah, and, and it would also discourage you from being open to the idea of epigenetics, the idea that some traits can be passed on, which increasingly in small areas, not important large ones necessarily, but that it is possible at all is absolutely stunning uh, given the way people were believing for the last few hundred years. And um, it's you miss that. You'd be biased against it. Exactly. And and in fact, uh, I think you mentioned earlier that um, Lamarckism is uh, having a sort of comeback today. And maybe I should specify, I think that's right. And and what, what I mean by Lamarckism is... It um, isn't, I just, I'm going to interrupt for a second. It isn't that by stretching for the fruit, the giraffe gets a longer neck and passes it <laughs> onto their children, which is the sort of parody. That, that, that is that, the, that's well, what I was taught. That. Well, he, but that's the way we're all taught now. Like, well, that was a wrong idea because that doesn't right. happen. Right. I remember learning that in high school biology as an example of total wrongheadedness, the, the giraffe stretching its neck. But by Lamarck, by, by Lamarckian, Lamarckism, Lamarckian biology, what I mean is, um, the, first of all, the idea that uh, an organism can change in the course of its lifetime in ways that can be heritable. And uh, as you say, uh, epigenetics is one area, one current sort of very hot area of biological research in which people are finding that um, organisms can transform in ways that are not within the genome, but but you know, outside the ge the genes, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of things. There's the cell. There's the body. There's the environment. There's um, and 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 so an organism can transform um, uh, in the course of its lifetime in heritable ways. And I think biologists are currently very interested in studying that. Um, I've gotten actually sort of 
connected with a group of biologists uh, through my colleague at Stanford, Mark Feldman, um, and and his uh, sort of, uh, I guess, collaborator, Kevin Leyland, who's at the University of St. Andrews. And they've invited me to a couple of conferences. Um, it's been really fascinating. So they are at work on something they call the extended evolutionary synthesis, which is trying to build uh, back into evolutionary biology all those areas outside the, ge- the genes that um, that the kind of neo-Darwin Darwinist uh, tradition had left out. Um, so from from the the from the larger cell to the body to the environment to even they're interested in um, the culture of and of animals and animal behavior, um, and that's been really fascinating for me to be a part of those conversations. So I want to draw a different lesson from your book, which I you know I understand it's not. It's a long book. You got a lot to talk about. There's, there's a, a whole bunch of uh, very uh, in-depth intellectual history that that uh, that you explore there, and so you don't have obviously room or time for everything. But wh- one of the things that struck me uh, as I read it was was the following, and I, it's an issue that's come up on the program before. If you read these brilliant people, Descartes, Kant. Uh, Darwin, Lamarck, uh, and and a few dozen other of their colleagues that you write about in some detail. It's an amazingly erudite book. Um, one thing that strikes you, at least it struck me, and I'd love your reaction, is that yeah, they just had no idea. <laughs> they, they they were really smart, and and they had, of course, limited knowledge of all kinds of things. Genetics being one obvious example for the list that I just gave you. But they had limited knowledge. And so their idea of, say, what, how are human beings different than animals? They had all kinds of, of wacky ideas that were that we look at now and, and laugh about. Um, but it strikes me we haven't made that much progress on a lot of these issues. And the second thing that strikes me, and you and I talked about this uh, before we came on the air, is that a lot of times we, we latch onto a metaphor like a clock – because it's the most advanced thing we can possibly think of. So that was true in, say, 1750. Uh, and at that point, then it later became, say, the steam engine or the combustion engine became a better metaphor. And now it's the computer. So we say, well, you know, eventually we'll understand that maybe the whole universe is a computer. It's all simulations. I mean, really smart people believe this or at least consider it or speculate about it, that the entire universe is a computer simulation. It's like, really? Right. <laughs> I mean, if, if you read intellectual history, which is what your book is, you realize that we're just – we're really in the dark a lot of the time. Now, it doesn't mean there won't be a moment where we're in the sunlight and maybe we'll have, quote, finally figured this out, whatever this is. But it strikes me uh, that humility is one of the lessons you might gather from some of these questions and our attempts to answer them. Yeah, it's interesting. I think in the history of um, – an example is in the history of artificial intelligence. Um, well, let me back up for a moment and say that I think both things are, are true. On the one hand, the sciences make tremendous, extraordinary progress. And on the other hand, it seems like um, – uh, certain problem, core problems don't get any closer to being solved, even while that tremendous, extraordinary progress is happening. And so an example of this is in the history of artificial intelligence. I think um, many uh, artificial intelligence uh, researchers have, have talked about this problem of a kind of moving of the goalposts. So each time it becomes possible for a computer to do something that seemed like uh, uh, you could never do that, now there's a so you know certainly a computer could never play chess. Uh, well, 
then there were computers that could play chess. And so people said, okay, well, that's not really the, the key thing. It's to be able to play Go. <laughs> now there are computers that can play Go. Really and so, well. you know, each time, right. And so each time there's, and, and it seems like, I do think that we don't, we have uh, certainly not uh, through artificial intelligence, in my view, gotten any closer to the essence of what sentient, um, uh, what sentient cognition, even even of animals, is like, let alone of, of human beings. Um, maybe people that might be a controversial statement. I mean, I think people like maybe Steven Pinker um, uh, would disagree with that. Would say, well, we know that it's just a lot of subroutines, and we might maybe we don't know quite <laughs> the details. But uh, but to my mind, I, I don't. I'm not persuaded by that kind of argument. It seems to me that. Um, it's quite extraordinary the number of things that uh, computers can do and at the same time quite extraordinary how it seems to me that hasn't gotten us any closer to the uh, essence of sentient uh, cognition. Yeah, I agree. Um, One of the words I don't think I read in your book is – it's probably in there, but I didn't notice it – is instinct. So Ah. I want to ask – I want to give you a – tell you a story and then I'll let you react to it. So I'm looking out my window – on a Tuesday morning, and I see my bird feeder, and there's a cardinal on my bird feeder. It's really a gorgeous, beautiful, dangerous thing to be a cardinal because it's really visible, <laughs> a male cardinal. It's bright, bright red, and it's really nervous at my feeder, and I could, it at least appears to be nervous. I can't have any way of knowing. It, it seems to give off the air of unease. Restless, actually, would be a good word very restless at the feeder, and it can't stay there for long. It immediately flits to a nearby tree, and then it comes back, and it comes back to the feeder. And I'm thinking, did it it want to do that, or is that just instinct? And then I think about myself, feel like procrastinating, and I get up, and I say, I'm just going to have one handful of peanuts out of that giant Kirkland Costco brand Virginia peanuts. They're really good. And I take the handful and I go back and sit down and I read what I'm reading or work on what I'm working on. And then, oh, just one more. Now, is is there any difference between me and that bird? Is there is there will in that intention? Is the is the bird just responding to instinct? And I don't. Are we ever going to answer that question? I guess, and we could ask the same question about me. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been you know competing. Uh, approaches to that kind of question. So behaviorist psychology um, sug- you know, is about kind of describing animal and human behaviors from the outside and never ascribing uh, any internal subjectivity to it. <laughs> so then the, 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 the uh, behaviorist's answer to that question would be uh, you, you can just sort of Describe what the bird does, and don't assume any subjectivity on the part of the bird, any any attitude or or, or feeling. Just describe what it does, and assume that it does that uh, because it, of its mechan- you know how it's constructed. It's constructed to behave in those ways. Um, and I, but I, it seems to me that like those are questions of principle more than science. You know, do you do you adopt an, or cybernetics is another uh, example. I think that um, cybernetic movement of the mid 20th century um, which was which in which people like Norbert Wiener at MIT tried to understand animal behaviors and computing and human intelligence this kind of constellation of things on the same model all on the same model um, and it was sort of axiomatic to them that you 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 kind of describe it from outside 
in. You don't make assumptions about what's going on on the inside, sub, uh, the subjecthood of the of the organism. Um, so, but it seems to me that those are questions of principle more than or or methodology or approach. They're not questions that you can. Uh, you, you have to sort of um, adopt a stance. I don't know how you would ever answer that question <laughs> through. Uh, through the science, rather you adopt a stance uh, in in kind of framing your experiment, framing your science. You decide, well, I will either assume subjectivity or not. That's a tough one, though, right? I mean, it's yeah. Um, I, mean, I presume that the cardinal does not, when at the bird feeder, have a flashback to a memory as a a younger cardinal in a time that. It was the seeds were better than the lousy ones I put out this year. Unlike myself, who might reminisce about some peanuts I had at a baseball game with my dad when I was a little boy and have a nostalgic moment. But I don't know. Maybe cardinals have nostalgia. We can't. It seems we can't know. At least right now. Well, and also, it's interesting that Lamarck I mentioned said at the level of birds and mammals, these higher forms of responsiveness uh, come in. So, because I was just, you know, my dog certainly has memories of things she's done in different places, yeah. even even long after the fact. And when we go back to that place, she, you can see her remembering, oh, there was a nice mud puddle here last time. I'm going to go see if it's there again, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, and I think at least according to Lamarck. Um, uh, organisms up to the level of birds and mammals can have various forms of sort of un- almost unconscious responsiveness, but from birds and, and mammals, uh, they uh, they can respond deliberately and, and through acts of will. Let's talk about emergence, which is one of my favorite things in economics, neglected to my in my view, and I get the impression you think it's been neglected in, in science as well, even though it's incredibly hot right now as an yeah. overall concept. What is its importance in thinking about sentience and thinking about the lifeness, the vitality of things? Well, gosh, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that. I mean, it seems to me like emergence is a way of um, naming the problem of a kind of gulf between, you know, if you give a, a as minute a description as you can of a living thing, there's a kind of gulf between that minute description and the result the kind of whole whole result of a living, sentient, acting, responding uh, being. And so emergence is a way of kind of naming that gap. You know, something happens in between the low level and the higher level, the low level causes and the higher level results, something happens. Um, but it seems to me that often it's, it's a kind of a, uh, it's a kind of a hand waving. We don't really know what happens, so we just have to assume that something mysterious happens in there in that gap. I think in science, at least the way you've used it here, emergence is the idea that the sum is greater, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? In in in, e- in economics and in other aspects of science, yes, that's part of it, but it's also the idea that uh, that doesn't seem to cover it. It just seems to me that's not the, uh, in particular, in economics, the idea that say a market might. Uh, here, I'm going to lapse into my. Um, uh, anthropomorphization of a non-animate thing, markets, they seem to often to try to solve problems. And my favorite example is, uh, one of them is that when when hundreds of millions of Chinese uh, leave the countryside and move to the cities and they start sending their kids to school and their kids start using pencils, so now all of a sudden the world needs a lot more pencils. And there's no pencils are. There's nobody sitting around thinking, gee, how are we gonna, what are we going to do? Uh, and yet somehow the market 
raises the price of cedar and people start looking for substitutes for uh, pencils. They use more pens. They use the things that they use cedar for. They might use fewer cedar less for those things, find substitutes so that the cedar can go to the pencils. And so I show up at Staples today and I say, uh, I'd like a dozen pencils. And they don't say, are you crazy? The Chinese got all the pencils this year. Come back in 2020. <laughs> uh, that's a miracle of something, uh, you know, of some kind, uh, not a divine miracle. It's a it's an amazing a marvel is what Hayek called it. And um, it looks like the market tried to solve that problem and did, right? That That's what there's there's a there's an orderliness to emergence in some areas that's more than just it looks orderly. It seems to be purposive. I guess that's the way I'd phrase it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's a way. Okay, I was thinking as you were speaking, um, you asked whether I think that emergence has been overlooked uh, in the in 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 the life sciences, and I think maybe one way in which I think it has been overlooked is that there's this. It, it, well, I was talking earlier about a kind of reductive uh, tendency in neo-Darwinism and in a lot of uh, 20th century evolutionary biology into the 21st century, a kind of insistence on um, there being only one kind of causal uh, factor, only one kind of causal explanation, which is natural selection acting at the level of the genes. And in a sense, why should that be the case? The world is messy and complicated and full of different levels of things competing and acting in different ways, and a kind of stew of lots of different kinds of forces. Why should it all re uh, reduce to just the one uh, basic level of causation? And I, I think, you know, recent... Um, research in biology that I was mentioning, epigenetics and, and these people who are interested in the extended evolutionary synthesis um, are, are trying to bring back some of those layers of, of messiness and complexity. And I would say the same thing must be the case. I don't, I'm, now I'm on shaky ground because I don't know a lot about economics, but it seems to me like the same thing must be the case uh, in social systems uh, like, uh, like economics, that there's a kind of mess of different factors. And so if you try to explain it just on the kind of one level, you're going to be missing a lot of complexity. Uh, and so I think when people talk about emergence, it may be partly also about trying to recover all those layers of complexity that get um, filtered out in the, in the most reductive versions of these sciences. That's a really great example. I think a lot of people like to say it's cute. They like to say that Adam Smith was the first behavioral economist because Adam Smith understood that we deceive ourselves, we're flawed, we're imperfect, and Modern economics uh, for roughly the last 70 years has been about mathematical models that make absurd demands on what people are capable of, of deciding and information taking into account what information. And, and you know, again, economists would defend that by saying it's just a simplification. It's not literally what people do. And, you know, I, it's a very – I don't want to ever suggest that's a, that's a mistake. It's, a, it's obviously a good idea. I don't think – you know, I use this example a lot of, of football players. Uh, I don't think they when they when they're on the field they say to themselves, "Well, I'm wearing a helmet. I can I can throw myself at 60 miles an hour into someone else's helmet." Um, and yet, if they played without helmets, I think they'd play differently. And so, there's obviously parts of our behavior that are not um, calculated, but still can be treated as if they are calculated. You know, Milton Friedman liked to say that the truck driver takes the turn on a rainy night as if he knows the physics of the friction of the road, the tires, and, and he's onto something there. That's definitely true. 
I just think you have to be, you know, you have to be somewhat careful in, in how you push that. And so today, people like to say, yeah, so all those standard models of rational decision makers, those are obviously wrong. People are full of flaws. Of course, if you're not careful, then you just don't have any, anything to say about anything. You just say, well, people are stupid. They, they make mistakes all the time, and you throw up your hands. So it's, it's a very tough thing. It is. I mean, I think that uh, also the, dis- the various disciplines are different in this regard. So historians, I think, are people, by and large, who are drawn to um, complexity and messiness. Yeah. Uh, that's not – certainly there have been reductive schools of, of historical scholarship. Yeah. Certainly there have Marxist, been. But yeah. still – yeah, but but still, I think you know uh, we we are interested in in kind of storytelling, <laughs> and so there's you that that requires a certain kind of uh, uh, multiplicity of, of 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 forces and factors and characters and and, and impulses, and so you know it, it just seems to me like um, as a discipline it tends toward complexity maybe more than some of the um, social sciences or sciences. Um, so maybe this is something that historians have to offer the academic world or the sort of scholarly world is kind of Re, uh, reintroduction of, of of complexity and messiness. Well, I make this claim, and I don't. I think I'm alone. Um, <laughs> you and me. It's two of us. Uh, you know, <laughs> if if I, if I said to you, well, what was the cause of the Civil War, or what was the cause of the founding of the United States? No good historian would ever pretend there was one. They, that would right. be silly. And then it'd be even sillier to say, okay, you gave me four or five causes. Give me some percentages on each one. You know, what percentage of it was due to economics? What percentage was due to culture? What percent? And I've had people do that with, to me with the financial crisis. Okay, there's a lot of different things. <laughs> Can't it just be the truth, which is it's really messy uh, and every event might be somewhat unique? Uh, that's right. not good English. Um, that, that, that every example, every data point is, is – there's only – every sample has one data point in a certain dimension in history. And yet – there are things that are in common, so we try to, you know, we understand that. But, but I think if economists acted more like historians, we'd be more honest. No, nobody, yeah, uh, you know, it's, I use this example. If if we're about to say it, invade Iraq uh, a few years back, and, and would you call in a historian and say, "Well, tell me what's going to happen?" You say, well, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> but yet we do a tax cut or we do a, a trade war with China, and economists are expected to tell us, "Quote, what's going to happen?" That's weird. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think actually a story is a good form of explanation. Um, so, you know, if you ask a question like what caused the Civil War or um, some of the examples that you just gave, the best form of explanation in response to that is a whole story. <laughs> um, story. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I got from your book, uh, which I found amusing, and I'd like you to, to talk about it, is the, the uh, internecine nature of of science and discovery and uh, particularly the Darwinian story where you give people details about Darwin's doubts and, and fears and uh, that most people don't either, they either don't know about him or they don't want to think about him because it's true. What are you talking about? <laughs> and so one of the things I found, and maybe I'm being unfair to the scientists, but uh, I, I felt at times they were like religious believers who were afraid that something would refute their model, their story, uh, the way a religious person might worry that a miracle could be explained by a natural explanation, that there's some, uh, you know, some counter evidence out there. It's like, oh, phew, phew, I was able to explain it away. You know, <laughs> you're supposed to go, wow, maybe the world's richer than, maybe I need to revise my theory, but we're human beings and we struggle to do that, it seems to me. 
Right. Yeah. I, I really uh, especially loved writing the parts of the book about Darwin because um, his, uh, well, first of all, he was such an extraordinary writer, uh, such a beautiful uh, prose writer of English prose, both in his published writings and in his letters. And, um, and, and he also, uh, he had these, you know, voluminous correspondence with friends and, 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 and colleagues all over the place. And he, those letters, I mean, he really, um, lays it all out there, you know, what he's worried about, you know, his anguish over the, whether the eye, for example, the, the, the favorite example of, um, people, Making arguments from design in the nineteenth through much of the nineteenth century was the the eye. The the eye seems to be so perfect and so much like a lens instrument, like an artificial lens instrument. Um, and Darwin <clears throat> wrote to Asa Gray at Harvard that he, he that he loses lost sleep over this. You know, maybe it is, maybe it is a, a kind of irrefutable argument for for design. But then he sort of pulled himself together and realized how one could give an evolutionary explanation of the eye. So in any way, I'm, I'm, uh, what, what I mean to say is that you you see all of his worries and all of his um, agonizing and, and and ambivalence about it. And in particular, I think Darwin was torn between, as I I said earlier, I think two, these two different models, the clockwork model that he got from Paley, the passive clockwork model, the watch on the heath, and this uh, rather more mysterious, um, but but also, uh, I think, on some level, um, essential <laughs> the model that he got from Lamarck of living things as fully material, but in a continual process of self-creation and self-transformation. And that's what gave him, I mean, so if you, if you think about his theory as being composed of uh, the idea of uh, sort of two main ingredients, uh, the idea of fitness or adaptation, he gets that from Paley, uh, uh, partly. And then the idea of uh, transformation of living forms over time, uh, he gets from Lamarck, and he has to somehow make them fit together. And he really, I think, struggled and suffered uh, over this. I think he was also, his own grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, had come up with a, a, uh, an idea of transformation of living forms around the turn of the 18th to 19th century and had expressed it in very, very romantic, uh, you know, actually literally as, as poetry in the footnotes to, 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 uh, to poem, long poems. And, mm-hmm. and he was a romantic writer. And I think Darwin was both very influenced by his grandfather's work and also kind of embarrassed. You know, he wanted to um, um, somehow kind of uh, set himself apart from that romantic vision. At the same time, uh, as as a historian of science at Chicago, uh, Bob Richards has written, you know, Darwin was very drawn to romantic writing, German romantic writing. He loved uh, the German romantic uh, Alexander von Humboldt and carried his work around in his pockets to, to read it out to friends and stuff like that. So he was drawn to these things and also worried. <laughs> well, it's fascinating that you that you mentioned that he's trying to square this circle or, or combine these two ideas, the idea of, of adaptation or fitness, because so much of the natural world seems as if it has a purpose or it looks – the features of it look purposeful with the – what was the second part? The, uh, the, the, the transformation of living right. forms over time. Right, and so yeah. the irony is is that I think Adam Smith helped him a lot think about that. And, and it's the irony is that – it's not that Iron Smith did. The irony is is that – And Malthus. And Malthus too, economic right? Yeah. But they were living at a time when economic – Progress and transformation was so minuscule 
compared to what was coming, but it was already started, so they could write about it. They could write about change, right? If you were writing economics in in the year eight hundred, you're you're there's not much going on. <laughs> you know, I, I forget who maybe Robert Lucas observed at first uh, in my experience that you know through most of human history, there's no progress. It's just the same. Ox pulling a plow, and 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 the level of standard of living is going to be pretty much constant. And then suddenly something starts happening, and and Smith, writing in 1776 with the Wealth of Nations, or in 1759 with the Theory of Moral Sentiments, they're at the just the beginnings of the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution when the possibility of transformation through the division of labor that he was so interested in could happen, combined with competition. And so presumably Darwin. Sought, was helped by that a lot. That that helped him see the, how competition molded adaptation and led to change. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think actually um, uh, from Smith, from where he's at, you know, in the 1760s, 70s, um, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, it, it, it didn't feel uh, – minuscule or slow at all. Exactly. It felt, you know, you, you see the Industrial Revolution just booming all around. When you read his his prose, you see it all filtering into there. You can almost sort of see out his windows yeah. <laughs> um, at what's happening all around him. Absolutely. And I think you're right that uh, that, that pace of, of transformation of the world. Darwin also, actually, another thing uh, maybe kind of related to this is that there was a kind of agricultural revolution in, in Britain in the early part of the 19th century. And, and Darwin was seeing, you know, he, he joined pigeon fancying clubs and he studied animal breeding and he got uh, a lot of material from artificial selection from breeding uh, as as kind of evidence for him yeah. uh, for the power of selection so he was responding to economic and social developments around him absolutely um, yeah I, I guess what I was trying to get at it just to realize it now is that if if he'd been able to read Schumpeter and the idea of creative destruction he would have made a lot it would have been easier for him because <laughs> That that's when, and of course he was probably reacting to Darwin also, because he came out. He Darwin's between Schumpeter and Smith, uh, but that idea in economics that things are constantly arising and through the force of competition, either surviving and knocking off existing firms, existing in uh, technologies, is is very um, uh, Darwinian. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, I think it's it's hard not to read history backwards because it does seem as though people, you know, the earlier people are anticipating the later people. But in fact, it, it's probably the other way around. The later people are building on the earlier, you know, the later understandings are building on the earlier ones. Yeah, but sure. absolutely, that's all part of one, I think, intellectual tradition that you're describing. Uh, you want to close with Schrodinger? Um, now, if you'd ask me, I only knew one thing about Schrodinger's cat, and we don't need to go into Schrodinger's cat, but um, – Put a link up to Schrodinger's cat for the interested readers, uh, listeners uh, who want to read about it. But uh, you, you talk about the import toward the end of the book of a, an essay that Schrodinger wrote called What is Life? What is Life? Yeah. And I like that title because it's an ambitious title. Uh, it, it, it does have a question mark, I think, at the end of it uh, because it's a question that, that I'd say in many ways haunts your entire book. So why don't you close by talking about what Schrodinger uh, had to say about it and who was a physicist, uh, not a biologist, and um, why it's interesting and important. 
Yeah, I think that's an absolutely extraordinary essay, Schrodinger's What is Life? Um, because, well, ben, ben, apparently, I think many biologists consider it to be, have been a kind of, the kind of founding, um, uh, whatever, manifesto of uh, molecular biology. And he sort of anticipates um, DNA. Uh, he describes, he, you know, he describes it. Um, but what, what, what was fascinating to me about it is that he once again returns to the clockwork model, but uh, it's a restless clockwork model. Um, you know, he says uh, basically that the kind of clockwork that would be at the at the core of that could that could answer the question "What is life?" is a kind of uh, restless, uh, responsive clockwork that could conceivably uh, begin to move all on its own. Um, uh, he has this passage. Uh, in which he describes, he says, uh, a springless clock might suddenly begin to move at the expense of the heat energy of its own cogwheel and of the environment. Uh, the physicist would have to say the clock experiences an exceptionally intense fit of Brownian movement. So he's sort of um, groping for uh, f- for language to describe living things as machines, but um, restless, unpredictable, self-transforming ones, self-moving ones. Um, and so I, I, I found it fascinating when I discovered that uh, those passages in that essay uh, sort of long after <laughs> Leibniz, but coming back to the same kind of imagery. My guest today has been Jessica Briskin. Her book is The Restless Clock. Jessica, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Well, thank you very much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.